Welcome to Supplemental Materials, a podcast about genetics, genomics, and the people working on the forefront of human health. Sponsored by the Jackson Laboratory, leading the search for tomorrow's cures. Learn more at jax.org, J-A-X dot O-R-G. Hello, and welcome to Supplemental Material Episode 10. This is the second of a two-part conversation with Associate Professor Alyssa Chesler. If you've not listened to Episode 9, I strongly encourage you to do so as we discussed Alyssa's systems genetics approach for studying complex behaviors, and we talked about why she's using this approach to study the genetics and neurobiology of drug addiction. In this episode, we discuss the new Center for Systems Neurogenetics of Addiction that Alyssa directs. And that was launched with a uh, $11.7 million grant from the National Institute on Drug Abuse uh, recently. We also dive a little bit into Alyssa's background and her other interests, both scientific and otherwise. Enjoy. Uh, You know, it's interesting when you look at drug abuse prevention education, a lot of it's been around, you know, don't use drugs. If you have self-esteem, you won't use drugs. You know, but it's really about losing something that you value. And so we try to scare them with photographs of of people whose teeth have fallen out Mm -hmm. from uh, methamphetamine abuse. And, and, you know, that still seems very removed from seeing your friends who you know are doing drugs coming in and looking okay. Um, So so when, when is it really happening? And so we've actually wanted to go into classrooms with something compelling that shows people how that transition occurs and what that transition's about. And of course, we don't want to um, bring drugs and, and things into classrooms to do this, but what we've, we've actually done is um, we think a lot about operant behavior, executing a behavior and getting a reward for that behavior and how that becomes acquired, how that behavioral response is acquired and how it continues on to develop. And so we actually have a, um, the um, award-winning Lego Robotics Champions on Mount Desert Island here. So I had one of the uh, students in my lab from MDI High School, and he designed and programmed a, um, an operant conditioning chamber, a Skinner box, uh, where um, actual mice can uh, be placed in the box, and they learn to press a lever and get rewarded for food pellets. It's a complicated process, but it's, it's, it's one that we feel kind of really explains what reinforcement is and opens up the door to talk about good and, 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 and maybe not so good uh, aspects of, of reinforcement in our life. And we, we did it for a lot of reasons, actually. There's very little behavioral science in schools, but it's really important. It's fundamental to economics, decision-making, learning, gambling, addiction, diet. I mean... Hey, we'd all be better off if we like slept, ate better, exercised, used fewer drugs. But you know, we can't all just get up and change our behavior. So even even knowing this information, so how do we how do we develop these habits and how do we change these habits? Um, it's really important. We want to be able to communicate to students what it means to be stuck in a very narrow range of behaviors. Like, Mm -hmm. do you really want to give up your autonomy to the need to use this substance? Yeah. And can we communicate that? Because that's what addiction really is. It's not all the other things that we try to frighten people with. 
And, and, and those frightening things do happen. I mean, people do die uh, overdosing, uh, drunk driving, lots of severe consequences, uh, even from just acquiring drugs. Uh, and, and yet it's, it's, it's really the loss of autonomy uh, and, the, and that compulsive repetitious pattern that's doing all the damage. And that's the earliest thing that one can start to recognize, I think, if they knew to look for it. So you use the mice and the Lego operant conditioning chamber as teaching tool. You see it as as more than than just a, a research tool. It's well, the you know the professionally built operant conditioning apparatus costs uh, quite a bit, mm-hmm. um, and we do use a lot of them in the lab for our experimental work. Um, I I think that our uh, Lego box is 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 great, but. Uh, I, I don't actually collect my, my serious data from it, right. but it's it's been a nice, engaging way to show people how this this works, how we do it, and uh, we haven't yet been able to figure out how to how to introduce mice into classrooms. I don't know if you remember growing up having small animals in the mm-hmm. classroom. Uh, it's it's really um, not commonly done anymore, uh, even as pets. Uh, you know, between both allergies and concerns about animal welfare, potentially an antagonistic attitude towards uh, animal research. And, uh, you know, we learned so much from doing research using model organisms and making sure that that research actually does deliver for us is really important. And I think teaching, teaching people how research is actually done, showing them that there's technology and engineering, computer programming, robotics, uh, we need to build machines to understand the behaviors to do our experiments. Getting students interested in all of those things early in their academic training around this fundamentally important problem of addiction, I think, is is um, a really engaging thing. So we've we've now got this working uh, operant box, the Skinner box, and we've we've certainly been able to train mice. And what's interesting about it is we can actually even see that there are strains of mice, uh, like the first laboratory strain ever bred, DBA, 2J, acquire this food reward response at a very different rate from the very famous and widely used C57 Black 6J mice. And uh, you have to ask yourself, when we think about people, we think about good and bad people, which one of these mice has bad character? You know, <laughs> which, one, which one of these mice really can't help themselves, you yeah. know? And needs more willpower. Yeah, so, so, you know, I think it's like we can even think about these individual differences and the underlying biological differences when we say, look, these are, these are mouse strains. I've got mice in my lab that drink more alcohol. I've got mice in my lab that don't drink alcohol. Uh, and it's not all about the taste, you know. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, um, some of them certainly get heightened effects. So you don't think one of those mice strains is evil or... Not those two. I mean, I've, I've encountered Morally some evil. I've there. encountered some evil <laughs> mouse strains, but these these are these are not. No, you know, there's you know even even aggression. We've bred some really exciting new mouse populations that give us high resolution our genetic mapping studies and lots of variation to examine. But they act more like real live mice, uh, real yeah. real mice, and 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 some of them, not all of them, but some of them are more aggressive. Uh, some of them are are more docile. You know, so every single behavior, uh, if, if we can understand how to see it in mice, uh, we're, we're actually able to study the biology underlying it, and we do see differences among individuals uh, inherent in, in these mice. 
one more question following on what you were just saying about using mice as a tool and, and mm-hmm. for outreach and so on. So by the time people will listen to this podcast, a funding decision will be made. Um, Center for Systems Neurogenetics of Addiction. You know, there, there are so many sources of risk for addiction, uh, whether it's impulsivity, early effects. We talked about that initial effect of drug exposure, the aha of that first drug exposure, the different patterns of acquisition, how rapidly a mouse learns to acquire a person, how rapidly they become addicted, how easily they stop using when the drug's no longer available. Do they keep seeking it or do they move on to something else? And even natural biological variation, a lot of drug use seems to be tied with circadian variation. And maybe it's that the same mechanisms in the brain influence circadian rhythms and influence drug abuse simultaneously. And there are individuals who are using drugs to dial in their right circadian um, state. And so disruption, dysregulation, or abnormalities may be a huge factor in drug use. We know about morningness and eveningness in people. and We want to be able to study all these effects. And if you try to do this in people, first of all, you need millions of them. Yeah. But second of all, you can't really uh, control where they live, what they're exposed to, when they're exposed to it, all of their sources of variation in their life history that influence their behavior. So what we can do in laboratory mice in a very holistic and comprehensive biological approach, which we call systems genetics, is understand how these multiple traits, these multiple exposure factors, and lots of genetic variation come together to influence biological processes which we can identify through genomic methods and how those biological processes then influence the brain and behavior of those individuals. But to do something of that magnitude uh, goes beyond what a single lab can accomplish. And um, so a team of investigators uh, from uh, multiple labs across the country have gotten together to uh, study each of these different facets of behavior. And we've really done something interesting with this proposal, which is to sort of change the model uh, for, for how these projects are done. Uh, in the past, I've been involved with projects like this. Uh, we've actually done a, a multi-behavior uh, study uh, with a large number of traits in, a, in another population of mice. And it was very informative, Um, so we wanted to apply this approach to addiction specifically. What we're doing in this, instead of sending mice to many different labs, we're actually bringing the investigators' research methods here to Jackson Laboratory and having them use our facilities uh, to do the data collection here on mice that live here. It's a much better way of treating the mice. They don't go through this kind of bizarre experience of flying cross-country coming into a strange lab and and being tested, we can actually put them in a single environment, use fewer mice, and have people combine their efforts to study multiple traits in the same mice, uh, and then work simultaneously as a team with expert computational biologists to integrate that data and find the genetic variants that influence addiction. And we want to ask the question, how does risk for addiction kind of harness the mechanisms of addiction itself to um, to influence uh, the behavior of these individuals. This all sounds very exciting, uh, both from the, the research questions perspective, but also just as a model 
um, for how to approach complex questions. Um, are you seeing this maybe as kind of a forward-thinking uh, approach for attacking larger uh, questions uh, of some biological complexity where you need the expertise of multiple labs and you don't want to be shipping mice around? Absolutely. I mean, even from our earliest efforts in systems genetics, we were captivated by the idea that in a, in a fixed population, a reference population of mice, if all of our experiments are carried out in a related population, we can actually easily integrate the results of those experiments. So I can say I've, I've obtained some measurements in, in a population of mice, maybe of anxiety, and another lab is studying alcohol drinking, and another lab studying their circadian traits. Steve may be studying some things about gene expression or protein abundances in the brains of these mice. And we can put all of that data together and very seamlessly say, you know, these two traits are correlated, and they're correlated in such a way that they're associated most strongly with the activity in this particular biological network. And what we used to do is run all these isolated experiments by individual labs kind of chipping away at one piece of the puzzle with incredible depth, but we could never connect all those puzzle pieces. Mm -hmm. And the, the systems genetics approach and also our integrative genomics approach, which we, we've developed in a website called GeneWeaver, allow us to take many disparate experiments, connect their results, and ask the question about how are those results related to one another? What do they have in common? And therefore, what are the behaviors that are being measured have in common with one another? Mm -hmm. And we do that in a manner that simultaneously gives us the mechanism. It gives us genes to, and, and proteins and targets to work on to actually try to manipulate those, those behaviors. You're listening to Supplemental Materials, sponsored by the Jackson Laboratory. Lego Outward Conditioning Chamber. So I'm assuming that you had some interest in Legos already. Uh, to go in that direction, no? Oh, yes. of course, yeah, yeah. yeah. Legos and 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 their 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 smaller uh, Japanese cousin, the Nano Block. Yeah, big fan. I, I had Legos uh, when I was a kid. Um, uh, you know, and and you had to be really creative with the Legos I had because uh, all I had was rectangular bricks and two wheels. Mm -hmm. So I ended up bu building this Winnebago <laughs> every every time. And, you know, and, and you know, if you if you get clever, you can make like you know airplanes and things out of it. And of course, I had some of those Lego space sets. You know, but Legos are great. I mean, people people are captivated by them. Have you seen the Lego Movie? I, I have. It was okay. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and you know, while I was writing my my very large grants, I I like coming home in the evening sometimes, and it's like you know, I like to, I like to do something I can see. You know, a lot of what we do is very abstract, yeah, and, yeah. Mm -hmm. and then you send it out for review, and they say, well, here, here's how everything should be redone, and so, you know, your work kind of comes and goes in this way, and, and uh, so, so, yeah, so sometimes I like building on my house and things like that, but uh, you know, don't want to get into too big a project when I have a major uh, writing project to do at work, so coming home every night and putting a few pieces of puzzle together is kind of fun for me, and so, uh, yeah, I built a whole... Uh, uh, Nanoblock Castle while I was right in that center Whoa, nice. Yeah, 5,800 pieces, you know. That should be the logo of the center. Yeah. Well, it's, it's named after an airplane, really. It's funny how many yeah, scientists do house projects and, you know, Lego projects while they're also trying to write. Yeah, plants. you talked about it. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah, Are you, you doing floors? And, yeah. yeah. How but, did you become an amateur astronomer? How did I become? Or how did I, you... I was looking up and I saw that 
stars. And yeah, I but like, you've, Whoa, you've taken great. it past what most people who look up into the sky and appreciate I, the stars. I take many things past that point. You know, I just love it. They, they do say astronomy is a gateway drug for science. Kind of centering, you know, you're like looking at the stars. And if you do it often enough, you can begin to tell time and you can kind of just see yourself as a little tiny thing in this uh, multi-dimensional clock. So you like you... the how it makes you feel small? Yeah, I, I, I do. Some, you know, kind of, kind of. You know, I see. My, I'm part of this whole complex system. Yeah. You know, but you took it one step further. You've you've gotten really involved in the local astronomy club. Uh, or yeah, you know, um, we've done some um, some some different things here. Um, actually, a few days before. Right after I moved here was the first Acadian Night Sky Festival. I was very fortunate to uh, have my telescopes come off the moving truck just in time, uh, so I was able to get up there and, and uh, start looking looking at. Uh, oh yeah, I bet there's very low light pollution. Yeah, that's right. There, there is. Um, you know, we have it's 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 pretty remarkable, and it's remarkable too because we are in a position to be visited by most of the East Coast. We're mm-hmm. within a within a drive of the major population centers of, of, of the East Coast. So east of the Mississippi, Maine's got some of the darkest skies mm-hmm. that people can actually get to. Mm-hmm. It's a huge opportunity for um, science outreach, um, all those people coming uh, to visit the park and uh, uh, wanting to see uh, what, what the night sky has to offer. And, yeah, it's important. I mean, light at night, light pollution at night does influence breast cancer prognosis. It does influence our behavior. Um, you know, a lot of the circadian disruption that we're talking about, you know, what a lot of people are doing right before bed is staring at an LED screen. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's a phenomenally disrupting effect. Mm-hmm. We've only had light on our planet, like electric light, by humans for like a, a little over 100 years. Right. It's like three three generations, I guess. Yeah, and so we're only really beginning to understand the biological, ecological, and social effects of that artificial light, and, and it's not pretty. Yeah, from behavioral science, cancer, and potentially many other things. So, um, so I'm passionate about that. I'm passionate about restoring a dark sky, but also, uh, you know, it's just it's just darn beautiful to look at some of these nebulae and galaxies and things and. It's, it's it's something different. Um, it's amazing to, to look at Saturn. It's, it's also really great to listen to people when they look at Saturn for the first time. And yeah. uh, you know, uh, depending on their age, they'll they'll say for reals or or maybe just <laughs> wow uh, or maze balls. Um, you know, but it's really that's it's, what you said. The I first did. Time I, oh yeah. No, I don't think maze balls existed when I when I first saw Saturn. Um, You're hip with the lingo. Not only just a little bit. It's it takes a while to reach uh, reach the coast of Maine. <laughs> yeah. So I don't even know. I mean that that may be like ten years ago is word. But were were you involved in astronomy and outreach when you lived in Tennessee? I was. Yeah, yeah. So um, I was in a group down there. We did a thing in the Smokies every year. It, it, it definitely, so I was really interested in it when I was a kid, and, and um, you know, but you had to, like, go through uh, schooling and, you know, graduate education and a lot of other things to be able to really afford a telescope, uh, you know, so employment helped uh, with astronomy, mm-hmm. and I had, a, I had a back porch that I used to like to go sit out at night and uh, hang out with my dog, and, and uh, there it was, um, you know, the Orion Nebula, and so I just gradually got 
bigger telescopes and things to look at. And now that, it's an obsession. Yeah. You know, it's, it's your a, telescopes are worth more than your house. No, not too much. No, <laughs> no. I, you know, I, I mean, you know, you actually don't need very much equipment. Uh, you can actually do a lot with your own eyeballs. Um, and I think it's really important that people kind of understand that there's so much science just right in front of yeah. us that mm-hmm. we just kind of connect with if we if we just know how to look at it. And it's it's pretty cool that we have so much better access to information. I see so many people just fooling around with like star map kind of things on their phones and trying to understand where the constellations are and watching them fit together and move. So Far Harbor area, this coastal Maine. It's fairly uh, rural, I would say. Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, are you kind of from a more rural or urban background? I would say I grew up fairly rural. Yeah. Okay. Um, we had a traffic light. Um, in my town, <laughs> that's better than my hometown. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know it's 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 true. Um, no, we, we you know I, I grew up in in all a number of places. I I, I um, uh, moved from Pennsylvania to Rhode Island to Connecticut. Bar yeah. Harbor has a lot to offer um, that that actually is atypical for for uh, a rural area. Yeah. Um, so it's 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 also kind of a resort sort of town yeah. in a way, right? And there's the national park. And a fishing community, yeah. and uh, you and know, a world class genetics lab. A world class <laughs> genetics world lab. Place. It's it's kind of like Jaws, Amity Island. You got your scientists, your tourists, yeah. your locals. You know, it's 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 a good time getting all that mixed together. Yeah, I, I want to try to make it up here more frequently, but it's already taken me a lot of adjustment. I, I'm more of a city background, mm-hmm. uh, <clears throat> and we moved actually to Farmington to Jackson mm-hmm. um, from. Tyson's Corner, Virginia, which is about as busy as you can get. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's even going to Hartford area has been a huge yeah. adjustment. I mean, I feel like we live out in the, in the country. Mm-hmm. Um, it is quite beautiful up here, but I wonder, you know, if it's tough for, for some people who aren't used to that to adjust. I think, I think, um, you know, I, I've lived in a number of places and, uh, I just, just try to uh, get involved where I am and got a house that was, um, started by hippies and, and, uh, I'm the first scientist who's owned it, but if you can conceive of a structure built uh, largely by PhDs, uh, it's it's been fun uh, to cool. to work on it. Yeah. And uh, you know, there's there's uh, of course the national park, lots of other things to enjoy. So it's it's probably a different way of life than anywhere else I've yeah. ever lived. Mm-hmm. But I think that's great about it too. We're getting so homogenized; mm-hmm. it's like it almost doesn't matter where you are. Yeah, and. Uh, yeah, I've, here. Well, I've been here in the middle of summer and the middle of winter. Very and, different. Of course, now very different. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I'm, I'm wondering, you know, in the winter, what do people do? We well, hang out a lot. Yeah, we're really interesting. No, seriously, everyone I've met has some sort of hobby yeah, or yeah. activity that keeps them really engaged. And, you know, you kind of meet people that live in uh, what I like to call stuff world. And they, they go and they acquire stuff and they arrange stuff and they, they ferret, ferry people around and, and, and um, partake of restaurants and movies and things. And we've got that too a little bit, but we also have each other and, and really uh, people are just passionate about what they're doing. Yeah. Um, so you get, get uh, kind of a different, in some ways, I, I, I think, kind of may, maybe more, more classic way where we're less distracted. Yeah. by all of these things in the world and, and 
kind of have more time to, to be creative. You think that the community at Jax is as, as tight as it is because of the remote? Well, I think the location plays a role in that. We do see each other at the you know at the grocery store. It's, it's true. You know, it is a small community, and it also tends to attract a certain type of person mm-hmm. uh, because it is a little isolated, and so you have to be open to that adventure. Yeah. And uh, the, I think the the biggest challenge is for me moving up here. I didn't realize at the time it was the we're so far east on the time zone that. You know, the sun yeah, the, yeah. goes down at 345 <laughs> in the winter, and, you know, it comes up at 430 in the summer. Yeah, sometimes I stay up so late, <clears> I see the sunrise, yeah, you know. Yeah, and I didn't so. realize how much of an impact that would have on my health in yeah. life. Um, but the things that I love are, are the things I didn't necessarily think I would, because I came from a small town, but a very different small town. Mm. So I love the community here. I love, yeah. you know, how... I can certainly see the appeal. So for the... Summertime, it must be, there must be a lot of energy yeah. and life here. Uh, I guess maybe I'm just like a grumpy winter person. You might, you might be, and, yeah. and, and the best way to love winter is to get out in it. And, yeah. uh, you know, it's, it's, it's pretty amazing. Um, I learned in Maine that my skin was waterproof. Like, I, like, I'm like, hey, it's raining. I can dig a hole today, you know, <laughs> yeah. uh, you know and go skiing <laughs> or, you know. Uh, drag some firewood around. Or there, I think this this place actually looks a lot prettier in the winter. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you can even you know go swimming on on New Year's Day if you want to. There's lots of great things to do here in the winter. Um, yeah. A lot of people skate. I don't personally. I, I gravity kind of frightens me a little bit. <laughs> but, you know. um, yeah. Well, you know, I'm, I'm going to try to to make it up. We have this really great bus. Maybe one time we'll do a bus podcast. Yeah, uh, do the podcast on the bus. <laughs> but uh, it makes it travel up here really, really easy. And um, yeah, so this is my third time up, and I love it. So, but one last question before okay. we close out: where, where, What's your favorite place to eat around here, or are you more of a prepare your own food kind of person? Yeah, no, I'm not a prepare my own food. You know, one of the best things Jackson Lab has here is is um, a little dining hall with, with uh, Roscoe's which I think is an awesome place to get a lot of work done. So many yeah. different people that you interact with. In fact, some of my bigger research advances have come from uh, just bumping into people at Roscoe's. Mm-hmm. So I do make that a real daily habit to just get out of my own space in the lab and, and spend some time down there um, interacting with different people. Um, but a, apart from that, um, I think there's, there's uh, many great restaurants in town. Yeah, we're just at the point right now where restaurants are starting to open up again. Yeah, so last winter... night was a little bit of a disaster. It was uh, my partner's birthday, and uh, there wasn't much you go? open. One of the local hotel restaurants, uh-huh. and, uh, you know, the birthday was had, for sure. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm excited about this Pork Nation that seems to be uh, popping up. Have you seen this one? No. Yeah, I think it's the name of it. It's called Pork Nation. It's a restaurant? It's not yet open. It's a restaurant in Bar Harbor. Really? Yeah. Where? I, well, the menu was posted up in uh, the offices sponsored programs. Here, wow. So if you just mm. walk in there and talk well, to Annie. Anything pork related. Yeah. I'm on board. Steve still thinks you can uh, beat me at the barbecue throwdown. We did have a, a faculty barbecue cook-off one day. And Steve, unfortunately, had just come on board. And so he's missed the opportunity to be yeah. voted Maine's best barbecue. Alyssa fancies herself a... 
barbecue wizard aficionado. <laughs> well, if you ever but need someone I mean, to judge, I wouldn't say that, oh, but I was able to. I was able to defeat my competition. That's true. Oh, yeah. Well, then Jack's cancer researcher. You're starting to make me hungry, so I think this is a good stuff. <laughs> Time to go point. snack. Um, thank you very much, Alyssa. It was a wonderful conversation. Sure, thank and you. Hopefully, uh, have you have you back sometime. Yep, you'll next be the guest host the next yeah. time he's here. Is that how it works? That's, That's how, how it works. So you are interviewed, and then you have to guest host. Kind of like a chain reaction. Yeah. He said they wouldn't release my interview until I guest hosted. So, um, no, I, so thank you, uh, Steve. Happy to be And thanks for everyone for listening. Bye bye. You've been listening to Supplemental Materials, a podcast about genetic science and the people working on the forefront of human health. Sponsored by the Jackson Laboratory, leading the search for tomorrow's cures. Learn more at jax.org, J-A-X dot O-R-G.